Welcome to Because It Is, a conversation about faith, justice, and other things that matter. This podcast is hosted by Second Baptist Downtown in Little Rock, Arkansas. Second Baptist is a vibrant, historic downtown congregation whose faith compels us to seek justice, care for the oppressed, and pattern our lives after the way of Jesus. We are a unique Baptist church that prioritizes diversity and inclusion for all. In this episode, Pastor Preston Clegg reflects on the last week of Jesus' life. You can journey through this week by listening to each segment daily or by listening to it in its entirety. We hope this episode helps you to engage in this week in a meaningful way. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Because It Is. You know, oftentimes uh, each episode has something to do with some issue in the world. Uh, Voting rights, uh, creation care, uh, redistricting plans, what have you. Um, This episode is going to be a little different. Uh, We're not inviting a guest in this episode. What we want to do is to dive deeper at the core of our gospel. I've heard it said that the gospel of Jesus Christ is about one thing, and it's about everything. I think that's true. Both of those statements are true. The gospel of Jesus is about the fact that Jesus is Lord and the good news that that is for the whole world. Uh, But it's good news for the whole world. So the gospel is about one thing and everything. In this episode, we want to walk through the last week of Jesus' life. Holy Week is upon us, and we wanted to offer some reflections with the intention that these deepen your experience of the last week of Jesus' life, and that even as it is a pivotal moment in human history, that it also might be a pivotal moment in your everyday life. This is the week that changed the world. And our prayer is that it's a week that changes us. Truth be told, all of Holy Week lives in me. I bet all of Holy Week lives in you. And certainly all of Holy Week lives in the world. So we would be wise to be wise to it. What I plan to do in this episode is to think through every day of Jesus' life, or Jesus' last week, uh, not life. We don't have that much time. You can listen to these as daily meditations during your Holy Week. You can break it up, uh, five to 10 minute segments for each day, or you can listen to these all at once in the course of a Holy Week. I'm going to ask you to bring your Bibles to this podcast and read the texts before we talk about them, because I think that will deepen this experience. So however you go about this podcast, I invite you to bring your whole self and your Bible and see what God might do. Of course, Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. This story is told in all the Gospels, but I'm going to use Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 10. So I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to the gospel of Mark, and read those 10 verses. 
uh, about Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. Did you know that on the Sunday that Jesus entered Jerusalem, there were actually two entries into the city that day? Jesus entered the city from the east. Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, procurator, uh, entered Jerusalem from the west and the city of Caesarea. You can see why the leading Roman official of the area would live in Caesarea, a town named after Caesar. Pilate did not typically live in Jerusalem, but because of the Passover feast, and these thousands of people, thousands of Jewish people re remembering their liberation from their powerful oppressors in Egypt, uh, the Roman officials wanted to lean in, lest the Jewish people uh, remember too well their liberation. So Pilate also entered Jerusalem from the east that day, a man, or from the west, excuse me. Pilate's entry would have been a manifestation of Roman power and imperial theology. In those days, people did not just think that Caesar was the leader of the Roman Empire. They used religious terms to speak of Caesar. Terms like son of God and Lord. In, in Latin, the word Caesar means Lord. And so many of the terms that we use for Jesus were terms that in popular parlance were used for Caesar. I want you to think about the raw power of Pilate's procession into the city that day. I see legions of soldiers. I hear stallions snorting. I hear armor clinking. I hear people... Um, almost cowering at the fear of it all, the power of it all, the magnificence, the pomp and circumstance of it all. And yet, while Pilate's procession is one of power, Jesus enters the city on the other side in a very peaceful way. Uh, Jesus' entrance is an echo of Zechariah chapter 9. I invite you to read that story today, that chapter, uh, about a king who brings forth peace, and brings forth peace not by overpowering people, but true peace that sees the, the familial nature of reality, that sees the brotherhood, sisterhood, kinship of all people before God. In a way, both entrances into the city that day were street theater. Both entrances weren't just um, logistical entrances into the city. They were entrances meant to make a point and to make a statement. One, an expression of raw political power, and the other, an expression of peace and love. I wonder today which, which procession you and I are in. I wonder if we're more given to the way of power or if we're more given to the way of peace and love. 
and not just in our confessions with our mouths, but in the way that we live our lives? Do we have more in common with Pilate's way or Jesus' way? Because these two processions set the stage for the reality of this entire week. So, which procession are we in? I'd like for us to think about Monday of, of the last week of Jesus' life. We don't know exactly the chronology and exactly what happened on each day, but we're following the story in Mark. And so I'd like for you to read Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 19. <clears throat> Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 19. Oftentimes, you'll hear people ask the question, why really did Jesus die? Why did they kill Jesus? I think this story, at least as it's found in the Gospel of Mark, is uh, one of the most significant answers to that question. Mark likes to tie stories together. Mark likes to begin a story and then start telling another story, a second story, and then at the end, come back to the first story. Scholars often call these Markan sandwiches. What we have in these verses is a sandwich, two stories that are meant to be read together. Notice verse 11. It says Jesus, after he entered Jerusalem, he entered the temple, looked around at everything, but left because it was already late. Mark doesn't tell us late for what or late in the day. <clears throat> Uh, we come to find out that it was really late for the temple. Uh, but Jesus saw what was happening in the temple. He looked around at the temple. The next morning when he woke up, uh, Jesus was hungry. He sees a fig tree and leaf in the distance. He goes over to find, uh, in, in search of figs, only to find that the fig tree and leaf did not have figs, for it was out of season. And Jesus curses the tree. May no one eat fruit from you ever again. Oftentimes, we don't know what to do with this story. Does Jesus have a temper tantrum? Is he hangry? What's the problem here? Why does Jesus curse a tree? Uh, why does Jesus curse a fig tree for not having figs when it was not the season for figs? Um, what's interesting about this is when a fig tree is in leaf, that is an indication that it is the season for figs. Uh, fig trees leaf out, and soon thereafter, uh, figs form in the tree. So from a distance, when Jesus sees the fig tree in leaf, the tree has the appearance of having figs. But when he gets closer, upon closer inspection, the tree is absent figs. It's not living into its own identity. And so it's, it's all leaves and no fruit. But that only makes sense if you read what happens in the temple. From there in verse 15, Jesus enters the temple, sees people buying and selling, and he overturns the tables and the seats of those selling uh, animals there. And notice verse 16. He would not permit anyone from carrying merchandise or vessels through the temple. One of the things I'll remind you of is that the temple of Jerusalem was one of the wonders of the ancient world. 
It took up multiple city blocks. And it was an entire complex, like it, it had a colonnade and a courtyard to the temple. And so instead of walking around those, instead of walking around all those city blocks of that complex, many people would just cut right through the temple grounds. After all, that courtyard was where Gentiles worshipped. That courtyard is where women worshipped. And there were signs prohibiting further entrance in the temple to women and to the Gentiles. So why bother going around when you can just cut through the temple complex? It's just the, temp it's just the courtyard of the Gentiles anyway. Jesus here forbids that practice. And as he does so, he begins to teach saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of thieves or a robber's den. This quotation is from two Old Testament sources, and I would encourage you today to go back and read these two sources. I don't think we can understand what's happening in Mark 11 without understanding the context of what Jesus is quoting here. In Isaiah 56, Isaiah has this vision of the day of the Lord when the temple of Israel will be known for its universal worship. It's a place for all people. The focus here isn't on the word prayer. The focus here is on the word all. Isaiah dreamed of the day when the house of the Lord would be a house of prayer for all the nations. And Jesus seems to be hearkening back to that, that the, the temple isn't a place for exclusion. It's a place for inclusion. And then he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. In Jeremiah 7, the prophet is preaching from the temple gates, the same location as this story in Mark 11. And Jeremiah warns the people about proper worship, but uh, having no ethics about themselves, that they, they take from the poor and they oppress the needy and they have unjust practices, and yet they run in the temple saying, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. Jesus here seems to be offering that same prophetic warning. It's not that they're buying and selling in the temple. That's not the problem. Robbers don't steal in their dens. They hide in their dens. And so Jesus here seems to be critiquing the temple, cursing the temple, dare I say, because it had become a place of exclusion, not inclusion. And the religion thereof had become more unjust than just. After Jesus leaves the temple, you'll read in verse 20, that as they go out into the city, they see that same fig tree withered from the roots up. Might it be that the temple from a distance looked like a place of great religion and just practices, but on closer inspection, it had no real fruit of justice and peace. It wasn't about what God wanted it to be about. And therefore, Jesus cursed it from the roots up. When the religious leaders hear this, they set about to crucify Jesus. You can't put up with this kind of preaching and teaching. This is why Jesus died. 
Might I ask you today how you've seen religion used to buttress injustice rather than end it? Might I ask you today what warning there is for us in the fact that it wasn't atheists or agnostics that crucified Jesus, but very religious people? And I wonder what expressions of religion that are all leaves and no fruit today that Jesus might curse from the roots up and how you and I might live into that in a more faithful and just way. We don't know exactly what happened on Tuesday of Holy Week, but in Mark chapter 12, there are a series of questions. Uh, there is a series of questions that are asked of Jesus. I would invite you today to read one such question and his answer found in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. You're familiar with this text, I'm sure. This question, like the ones that precede it, is meant to trap Jesus. This isn't a genuine question for more information or wisdom. This is a trap question. A scribe asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What's the first commandment of them all? I wonder if we could hit pause here how you would answer that question. There were 613 commands in the Jewish Torah, the Jewish law. I know people who would say, ah, oh, you can't pick and choose. There's no way you can choose the greatest. All scripture is inspired. It's equally authoritative. How do you pick and choose? You can't pick and choose. Either the whole Bible is true or none of it's true. You've heard that same kind of talk. And yet here, when Jesus is asked about the greatest command, Jesus does not hesitate to answer. He can answer that question. <clears throat> he begins with the Shema, a text in Deuteronomy 6, which was one of the core confessions of ancient Judaism and, and Orthodox Judaism to this day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. It's the great confession of monotheism. There's one God. You know, if you have many gods, then your goal becomes balance. You have to spread out your allegiances, lest one God think you're playing favorites and curse you. But if there's only one God, then the goal of life is not balance. It's singular and total devotion to that one God. If there's only one God, then we don't have to divvy ourselves up with multiple allegiances. We can give all of who we are in devotion to that one God. Jesus seems to agree. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Again, a quotation from Deuteronomy 6. You might go back and read that chapter today. This is a command to love God with all of oneself, not part of oneself, but with our whole humanity, everything that is Preston Clegg, everything that is you, 
is commanded to love God with all of our faculties. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. A quotation from Leviticus chapter 19. Notice that Jesus is asked about one great commandment, but he responds with two. Love God and love your neighbor. Because the two are linked. I think Jesus links those commandments because the two commands are linked. The way that we love God is in large part the way that we love people. In fact, all of us probably learn to love God in the same way that we learn to love people. But we also love people in the same way that we love God. The one determines the other. If we believe God to be judgmental or overbearing or a perfectionist, then we probably love people in overbearing or punishing or perfectionist kinds of ways. The way that we love God and the way that we love our neighbor and I might add the way we love ourselves, which is also mentioned in this text, all of those loves are born of the same fabric, which is why Jesus does not distinguish between them here. Might I also add here <clears throat> that this is a question about how we read the Bible. What's the greatest command? What's the most important part of Scripture? It's a question about the lenses through which we read the Bible. And if we believe that all Scripture is the same, then we're going to have a hard time coming to faithful conclusions. Um, there are parts of the Bible that command war, and there are parts of the Bible that command peace. So how do you choose? There are parts of the Bible that say, if you do what's wrong, you'll suffer. If you do what's right, you'll be blessed. And then there are parts of the Bible that say, blessed are the poor, and we suffer sometimes because of righteousness, not because of unrighteousness. So which is it? How do we decide? I think the lens through which we read the Bible is love. That's what Jesus teaches here. The greatest command is love of God and neighbor and self. And therefore, when we read the Bible in such a way that creates more love, we're reading the Bible faithfully in the way that Jesus intended. The scribe says, you're right, Jesus. You answered rightly. Love is the correct answer. And then Jesus turns to him and says to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That phrase, not far from the kingdom, is an interesting phrase. It could be a very tragic phrase. It could be that this guy's close. But whichever, I, I think the, the distance between not far from the kingdom and living in the kingdom is not knowing the answer. It's doing it. Doing it. So now that we know that the greatest commandment is to love God and neighbor and self. Let's, let's not just be not far from the kingdom. Let's love God, love our neighbor, love ourselves, so that we can participate in the kingdom. 
Might I invite you today to assess your loves today, all of them? And might I invite you to do it? Love. On Wednesday of Holy Week, I invite you to read Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. We're back in the temple in this story. Jesus is in the temple and he notices a widow woman. That's all that we know about her. We don't know her name. Probably no one knew her name. We just know that she was a widow woman, which means she was incredibly vulnerable in the ancient world. A, a woman's identity in those days were tied, was tied to her nearest male kin. And as a widow woman, uh, this woman, meet, what, what that means is this widow woman probably had no income and few ways to fend for herself. She comes to present her offering to the Lord. Jesus had been stationed there at the treasury of the temple. In those days, the offerings were put in shofar chests, uh, brass trumpets, metal trumpets, you might think, uh, or chests that uh, stored the offerings to God. And of course, those temple proceeds benefited the temple structure that Jesus has already critiqued, like we talked about on Monday. I think about what it sounded like when all the rich folks threw their money into those metal shofar chests and how that loud bang, that ringing echoed through the temple. I imagine people turning to see who gave so much. And of course, because of that, who loved God so much. These are the people who make budgets happen. These are the people who make uh, special temple campaigns happen. And yet Jesus doesn't say a word about the rich throwing in their gifts. He watches this poor widow come and put in two small copper coins, lepta in Greek. And those lepta did not amount to a single penny, to be honest. I think about that very quiet, chink, which prompted no one to turn their head and no one to notice this poor widow woman save Jesus. Jesus turns to her, turns to his disciples and says to them, I tell you, this poor widow put in more than all the rest. I've got to confess, this sounds like a different kind of math to me. And I wonder how Jesus um, figures that this poor widow who put in less than a, pity, a penny put in more than the rich. Maybe it's that Jesus' metrics aren't the same as ours. That Jesus doesn't so much think about who makes budgets happen as he thinks about who makes uh, righteousness happen, generosity sacrificial giving. Maybe Jesus doesn't think only about how much we give. Maybe Jesus measures by how much we keep. 
And if that's the case, this woman put in more than all the rest. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in verse 44, she out of her poverty put in all she owned, and it literally says her whole life. It's not just that she put something in the pot that day. She didn't just put her tithe in the plate. She put in her whole life. And these are, la these are Jesus' last public words in the Gospel of Mark. Before Jesus gives his whole life, he praises this woman who gives her whole life. Maybe she's foreshadowing what is to come. And the last public example in the Gospel of Mark is a widow woman in the temple. I do wonder if this isn't a tragic story, though. In the verses that precede this, Jesus warns about injustice in the temple once again, saying, beware of scribes who walk around in long robes and like to be respected in public places. And then notice verse 40. They devour widows' homes. Had the temple become a predatory place where widows were putting in all they had to live on, but not receiving care from that same temple complex? Was her sacrificial offering met with the temple's greedy abuse? I don't like to think about that because I don't want it to ruin a beautiful story, but I do think there is warning in that for us. That we're not just commanded to be generous and just in our personal actions, but we're commanded to be generous and just in our institutions as well. And we're not just to care for the least of these in our private interactions, but in our public ones as well. And so I wonder on this Wednesday of Holy Week, whether you and I have put in our whole life like this widow woman. I wonder what we're keeping out of the pot today. And I wonder if the institutions that we're a part of are more or less generous than the people that make them up, including Second Baptist Church. Might we continue to strive all the more to be people and a church that puts it all in the pot so that our entire community is as generous and just as the people who put in their lives and their offerings every single Well, we've made it to Thursday. Things are coming to a head. The ground's beginning to quake, and the skies are growing dark. This is Maundy Thursday. We've been in the Gospel of Mark so far, but today I'd like for us to reflect on the Gospel of John. John is the only one that tells the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet in full. This story is told in John chapter 13. 
might I invite you to read the first 17 verses of John chapter 13. Notice that in verse 1, it says Jesus loved his disciples here to the uttermost, to the end. This is an expression of love in this story, a fulfillment of love. Oftentimes we talk about love in the abstract, but here love puts a towel around its waist and gets its hands dirty. Love is expressed in service, y'all. It's not just warm fuzzies. It's it's showing up with a posture of service. It's considering other people before ourselves. Judas was in the room. We discover that in verse 2 of this story, which is a good reminder that Jesus serving his disciples had nothing to do with the worthiness of the disciples, but with the identity of Jesus. And if that was true for him, that's probably true for us as well. And this wasn't some mental lapse in Jesus' life. This was an expression of his authority as Lord of all. Notice verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, Jesus was aware of his identity, fully aware in doing this when he begins washing the feet of his disciples. A job for the lowliest of servants in those days, of course. Service is what love looks like on a normal Thursday. Service is what love looks like when nobody's looking. Service is what love looks like when the spotlight is turned off. And one by one, Jesus begins washing his disciples' feet. When he comes to Peter, Peter objects, Oh, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Peter cannot fathom that the Lord in the room would take on the posture of a servant. Maybe Peter objects because if Jesus is going to be about washing feet, Peter is going to have to wash some feet too. And yet Jesus says to Peter what I think Jesus would say to all of us, lest I wash your feet, you have no part with me. This is part and parcel of what it means to be people of Christ in the world. We are foot-washing people. After Jesus washes all of their feet, he turns to them and says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We all know these things. We've heard this story ad infinitum in our lives. We know that Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. But we're not blessed if we know it. Now that we know it, we will be blessed. The world will be blessed. Maybe Jesus himself will be blessed if we do them. This is called Maundy Thursday because it's based on the mandate, same word family, that Jesus gives in John 13. That we are to love each other the way that Jesus loved us. 
not to love each other the way the world loves us, but to love each other the way Jesus loves us. And so I wonder today, in light of that magnificent love, who or what stands in need of your service today? And how you might take on a posture of a servant even today, even this week? Where is your towel and basin? It's Good Friday, the day of the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus is told in Mark chapter 15. I would invite you to pause on this holy day and read the story again. Read the first or read all 47 verses of Mark 15. It won't take you long, but I want you to feel all that swirling in this story. Of course, there's a lot going on here, and we meet so many people in this story. We meet Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist. We know from Jewish literature that there were numerous insurrections in the first century. The Jewish people really resented the Roman occupation of the land, Roman taxation, and so multiple times during the Roman occupation, there were Jewish uprisings and Jewish insurrections, many of them violent. Barabbas was just such a figure. And when given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, the crowd chooses Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Um, at least he did something. At least he was willing to take up arms and fight. At least he was willing to take up the Jewish cause. Or maybe they chose Barabbas because Jesus was more revolutionary than Barabbas was. Maybe the way of Jesus is more threatening to the status quo than the way of Barabbas. We meet Simon of Cyrene in this story. A Jewish man from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa. Sometimes this Simon is called the Black Simon. Africa shows up in the crucifixion story. He was there for Passover. He was there to celebrate the feast. But this cross was placed upon his back, this accidental cross. He didn't go looking for it. This cross found him. And yet the one person in all of human history who helped Jesus carry his cross was the black Simon of Cyrene. Women were there at the cross. Maybe they showed up because no one would think to be threatened by the women. No one would suspect Jesus' disciples amongst women, and the men didn't feel the same freedom. Or maybe the men weren't there because they simply had no spine, and the women did. We don't know. We just know that the women were there. And this story, which turns the world on its head, this story which subverts reality as we know it, this story includes women at the cross of Jesus. 
maybe the work of God has included women all the way through, especially in the moments of crisis and world-changing deeds. We meet a soldier at the foot of the cross who the text says when he sees how Jesus died, when he saw how he died, says, surely this man is the son of God. I think about that often and remember what I told you in the Palm Sunday entrance story. Caesar was often called the son of God. Here is a Roman soldier. He knows power. He knows might. He has pledged allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And yet he says, surely this man, in a moment of weakness, in a moment of death, he says, surely this man is the son of God. Maybe he saw a strength in that weakness, a strength in that sacrifice that he had never beheld before. Maybe he beheld a might that might knows not of. Maybe he saw a power that power knows not of. Jesus was crucified between two other insurrectionists, indicating that people saw Jesus as a threat. Though he proclaimed and practiced peace, people saw him as a threat. In this whole chapter of Mark 15, the word substitution is not mentioned once. It's not just that Jesus died for us so that we don't have to mess with any of this anymore. It's that Jesus took up his cross in a way that models for us how we might take up our cross. That Jesus is an example for us of how we might walk the way of God here. That this story illuminates God's love for us. This story shows us the links to which God will go to stand in solidarity with us. That God doesn't know human suffering from outside of it, but God knows human suffering from inside of it. And we don't find God by escaping our suffering, but we find God by probing and exploring our suffering. God knows what it's like to be human, to suffer, to die, even shamefully and tragically, because God loves us. This is the place where suffering isn't perpetuated. This is the place where suffering is absorbed and ends so that we might absorb it ourselves and help end cycles of violence as well. Can you see the power of love in this story? You'll have to look close because it looks like weakness. It looks like death, and it is. It is. But that Roman soldier could see that it's the power of God. And y'all, it is the power of God. So can you see the power of love in this story?
we finally made it to Holy Saturday. I don't have a text for you to read today because there are no texts to be read today. Nothing in the Bible really tells us about Holy Saturday. It was a day of silence. This is the day that words kind of fall apart all around us. This is a day where there's nothing left to say. It's a day that it feels like nothing is happening. It's this place between terror and glory, between Friday and Sunday. Maybe this is the day that it feels like we spend most of our lives living, somewhere caught between terror and glory. You probably feel some of that even today. Y'all, so much of my life feels like a day in which nothing's happening. Nothing big is moving. It's just life. It's kind of like seeds planted in the earth. I grew up on a farm. A lot of people romanticize farming, but you should know that a huge part of farming is incredibly boring. There are days where it feels like nothing's happening. You can't see plants growing. You can't see seeds sprouting. You just kind of trust. But it's boring. It's quiet. Sometimes peace and faith and hope and love can be boring too. Sometimes they can look like failures. Sometimes it can feel like nothing important is happening. It's just kind of existing. Our life is just this fallow ground. Nothing's happening. But the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is like that. It's like a farmer who goes out to sow seed and then wakes up one day and poof, there's a plant. I wonder what in your life on this holy Saturday feels fallow, feels neutral at the moment. I wonder where it has long felt that nothing important is happening. And I wonder if you might pray for eyes to see and ears to hear today, how God might be moving precisely right there. Because even on Silent Saturday, there's something to be said. And even when you're looking at the dirt, there's things that are happening under the dirt. And even when you look at your own boring life, your mundane reality, there is more happening than you can begin to imagine. Grace and peace, my friends, and happy Holy Week to you all. If you're looking for a place to worship on Easter Sunday, I hope that you'll join us at Second Baptist. We'll have some good news for you. Peace be with you. As you go, go and love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Do so as if it's the most important thing in all the world, because it is.
Thank you for listening to Because It Is. These are just some of the things that matter to us at Second Baptist Church downtown. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit us online at 2bclr.com. That's the number 2bclr.com. And like us on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Brittany Stillwell and edited by Randy Schoenig with Fresh Air Media.